Thanks, Gord. Morning, everyone. Good crowd out today. That's great. Welcome to Lakeside Church. Welcome those of you that are online. And uh, if uh, you are new or you're visiting and you don't know me, my name is Paul Graham. I'm the lead teaching pastor here. And uh, we have embarked on a summer series called Life Under the Sun, and we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Ecclesiastes is a name. Um, it uh, sort of a name means uh, the preacher or the teacher. And uh, we believe this, re- re- this teacher, this preacher is Solomon. And uh, as we looked at last week in our introduction, it's, it's a book that is written as a view of life from the ground. Life under the sun is the recurring theme or the recurring phrase. And it aims as a book to examine every aspect of life as considered apart from God and determine if life under the sun has any meaning. If there is, as we talked about last week, even life before death, let alone if there's life after death. And his summary conclusion was that life under the sun is crooked and we cannot straighten it. Life is empty and we cannot count up or discover what is missing. However, we were reminded last week that there's one who came from above the sun to join us under the sun, Jesus, and he can straighten what is crooked And he came to fill up what is empty and to offer us life that is truly life. But that was all just sort of an introduction. Solomon is far from finishing laying out his exhaustive study of everything life has to offer under the sun. And in chapter 2, the teacher is going to tackle a number of philosophies or a number of worldviews or paths that one can follow towards finding some meaning. Paths that all of us at some point or other try to follow. Uh, that philosophers and writers and teachers try to discover if there is meaning and purpose down these roads or down these paths. As a human race, there's nothing we haven't tried to find meaning. As the summary poem states in chapter 1, there's nothing new under the sun. We've gone down and we continue to go down and explore dozens of paths in search for some advantage to life, some purpose, some ultimate meaning. And I want to remind us here that Solomon is older here in his life. He's he's writing this. He's been the king. He's been rich. He's done a lot of things. And we're going to get into all the things that he's done. And he's writing to Israel. He's writing to a nation that he's led. He's writing, I think, similar to Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing to younger generation in Israel. And he's saying, I'm an older man now, and I've experienced these things, and I know where they go, and I want you young Israelites to listen up. And we find that Ecclesiastes is an incredibly relevant text for us today, even 3,000 years later, and the message is still the same. So for those of you that are, you know, under 30, under 25, this is a book that you will want to read and reread, because this is Solomon, this is your mom and dad, for most of you, telling you, we don't want you to have the regrets we have. We want you to learn from our experience to discover where meaning is in life. And Solomon's going to explore the best of the best of life, what life might offer to the smartest, wisest intellectual who gains all knowledge, or what life might offer to the wealthiest, richest, most industrious collector and builder, 
or even what life might offer, the craziest, most foolish, hedonistic seeker of pleasure. Solomon's going to use the advantage of his status and his wealth and the time that he has and his intellect to study all aspects of life over the decades of his reign, pursue every possible path to meaning and satisfaction to see if he actually finds it. If there's anything at the end of the path, And as we journey along with him, we may find he's describing the same roads that we've walked, maybe the same roads that some of us are on right now. And we are discovering what Solomon has discovered. And we can let him go a little bit further ahead and report back to us. The thing that Solomon ultimately discovers is that that life's ultimate problem does not lie in the fact that it is of its tragedy the way Job does. Job's another wisdom book that looks at the tragedy of life and the difficulty of life in tragedy. But what Solomon is studying in Ecclesiastes is that the problem of life does not ultimately lie in its tragedy, but in its triviality. It's not that life is always horribly bad. It wasn't for Solomon. But even when you have apparent success, when you're winning at life, life is horribly boring. It's like a broken pencil. It's pointless. So what Solomon explores as a starting point is at least four main ideas that hold out the promise of some meaning in life. And he puts forward those four premises in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and then concludes with a very interesting conclusion. Let's pray before we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Solomon, the wisdom that you gave him the position that you gave him, the wealth that you gave him, the freedom that you gave him, (laughs) the insight that you gave him to explore these things. We thank you that he has put his life on display for us to not repeat his mistakes and to discover the life that is truly life and where meaning ultimately lies. So, Father, just pray that by your Holy Spirit we join the teacher, we would join the preacher on this journey and understand what he has come to understand and let him lead us in the paths of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes, I'm going to start in chapter, end of chapter 1, but it's mainly about chapter 2. And the first path that uh, Solomon wants to explore is the path of wisdom, or what we'll call intellectualism. And I'm going to read some of this and paraphrase as we go, because there's a lot of text. So it would be helpful if you have your Bibles with you on your phone, or if there's a pew Bible in front of you, you can open up Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2, and follow along to make sure that what I say is what's in the Bible. I'll put some of it up here, though. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 to 18, he says, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize that this also is striving after the wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and in increased knowledge results in increased pain. So Solomon says, let's educate ourselves. Let's learn as much as we can. God's given me this gift of wisdom, and I have all the resources of my kingdom at my disposal. I'm going to learn. And I can just sort of imagine Solomon kind of taking, I don't know how long he takes, three, four, five years on each of these journeys when he says he investigates these things. And so he's wise beyond everyone else. He's learned more than everyone else. And perhaps the answer to life's futility simply lies in greater education. 
Solomon thought if he maximized his learning, he'd be able to figure life out. But what happened is that as his knowledge increased, his joy did not increase, nor his satisfaction in life increased. Just the opposite. The more he knew, the more pain he experienced because he learned how knowledge by itself was not providing any ultimate answer under the sun. And we might call this philosophy of life intellectualism. If, if we just educate everyone enough, and if we just learned enough about everything, then we can make sense of life. We can figure out life, the universe, and everything. And everyone will behave properly, and we'll all have purpose and satisfaction. I mean, if we teach people that smoking is bad, then they will all stop smoking, right? Or if we just educate people, then crime will be eliminated because education is the problem. That's why people are criminals. Really? Because what we've learned is the best criminals are not stupid. We read in the news constantly that the greediest and most unethical people are often the highest educated CEOs, lawyers, and politicians. Regardless of how intelligent or educated they are, people are still selfish, arrogant, still malicious, still spiteful. We can educate people, we have educated people, by the millions, by the tens of millions, and those same people have not been able to be educated out of their immorality, nor into transcendence as a species. We think if we just educate the nations, then wars will stop. What intelligent nation would want to go to war, or start a war, or fight a war? We all know wars are losing propositions. We have all of history to teach us the consequences of war, and yet war rolls on. And crime rolls on. And self-destructive behavior rolls on. Whether you're looking at an international or a national or a personal perspective, intelligent people who know how to do math still play the lottery. They still gamble away their life savings. The most intelligent people still can't navigate their marriage relationship successfully or stop themselves from wounding others. We know how quarks and leptons interact with elementary particles in the heart of a nucleus, but we don't know how to live happily with our teenage children. <laughs> Intellectualism is not the answer, Solomon discovers. He went down this path, and it was a fruitless journey for the purpose of finding ultimate joy. He didn't get his answers. It just taught him the answer wasn't there. And this is not an argument against education or to embrace ignorance. The Bible's full of endorsements for wisdom and seeking knowledge and renewing and transforming our mind and of knowing. In 2.13 here, the teacher says that wisdom is better than folly as light is better than darkness. Wisdom is the better path. Solomon is convinced of that, but don't expect it to satisfy don't expect intellect and wisdom to be the ultimate answer in your life. It is chasing after wind. And maybe you're skeptical. You say you don't believe Solomon because it was 3,000 years ago and he was smart for his time, but we are so much smarter now. We know so much more. Okay, if Solomon isn't smart enough for you, how about Stephen Hawking? Do you think in your intellectual journey you are going to find something Stephen Hawking hasn't already found? But listen to him then. Even if there is only one possible unified theory, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science, of constructing a mathematical model, cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Stephen Hawking says, I've examined it all. I've gone as far as you can go down this path. There are no ultimate answers here. We can figure out how the whole universe works and not know how it exists. 
not know why it exists, not know why we are here. So the path of intellectualism Solomon discovers is pointless. It is chasing after wind. So he tries another road. If the answer is not intellectualism, then let's try hedonism. Ecclesiastes 2, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And then he goes on to describe all the ways that he enjoyed himself in life. And I try again to imagine Solomon on these quests, you know, years dedicated to intellect and science, and then years spent just partying as hard as he can possibly party. You know, just trying everything, drinking everything, smoking everything, doing everything, waking up, hungover, and then making notes in his journal. You know, I'm doing it for science. (laughs) You know, this is is a noble quest I'm on. In verse 4, he built vineyards, so he had wine. He created a harem for himself, many concubines, it says, so he had women. And he hired groups and troops of sinners, and so he had song. He had wine, women, and song. He had it all. He went after everything to get a hold of life. And if houses and wealth and entertainment were the key to enjoyment and satisfaction in life, trust me, Solomon tried it, did it, got the t-shirt. And it says in 2.10, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. And he's the king of the most powerful nation in the world at the time. So there was no pleasure that Solomon could not try at any time. And he tried it all. It's ironic that many in the world consider Christianity to be a sort of escapism for people who can't cope with life. I say it's ironic because it's the very people who claim that our Christianity is escapism who are themselves self-medicating and distracting their way through life. Rather than reading the Bible and reading books like Ecclesiastes and Job and Psalms, which look straight at the heart of the condition of mankind in an unflinching way, they are watching Netflix and going to comedy clubs or dance clubs or bars or on adventure vacations or doing anything other than deal with life. They're just medicating or distracting it away. They're escaping life any way they can. Christianity is not the way you escape life. Christianity is the way you cope and deal with life straight on. We don't need to dwell too long on this path of hedonism. Many of you have tried this road, and some of you may still be on this road. It's one of the fastest roads to a dead end. You hit the dead ends on this road every Saturday or Sunday morning when you wake up with a hangover, or at the end of every failed relationship where you gave away too much of yourself, and you've got a little bit less for the next one trying to satisfy cravings that never get filled, the dead ends on this road come up pretty quick. C.S. Lewis says, If we find in our hearts desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, we must logically conclude that we were made for another world. Solomon tried to satisfy his heart with every possible desire. There is nothing you can try Solomon hasn't already tried. And Solomon found, I think, what C.S. Lewis discovered later. That his heart wasn't made for this world. There's nothing in this world that fills that craving. All right, if the answer is not in intellectualism or in hedonism, maybe the answer is in what the text calls foolishness and what I'm going to call the path of cynicism. Maybe the answer is just to become a cynic, to just brush off all of life, to laugh it all off 
As Solomon explores folly and madness, he says in 2.16, there's no lasting remembrance of either the wise man or in the fool. In the coming days, all will be forgotten. The wise man and the fool alike will die. He becomes the ultimate cynic. Nothing matters. Nothing is remembered. It's total disregard for any of life's values because none of them last anyway, and it really is pointless in the end. We, we see the cynicism of foolishness in the very things that our culture laughs at. If you want insight into the cynicism of our culture, just look sometime, or rather don't look too closely because it's depressing, at the content of stand-up comics and comedy sketch shows. The best comics are most popular because they are just feeding back the cynicism of the audiences they entertain. From my generation, some of you may remember the show The Kids in the Hall. If you go back and watch The Kids in the Hall and watch that show or watch a stand-up comic on Netflix today, there is a brutal cynicism to comedy. Everything is stupid in the eyes of the fool, and so they mock everything. They laugh at physical disability. They laugh at broken relationships. They laugh at cancer. They laugh at the destruction of the unborn. They laugh at end-of-life issues. They laugh at mental disability. Every kind of thing gets laughed at in comedy. But there's a dead end to this kind of cynicism because when you try to make everything funny, nothing is funny. And that's what Solomon discovered. He says in 2.17, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. That's where you go when you go down the path of foolish cynicism. Everything becomes hateful. This is why the most successful comics have been routinely some of the saddest people you'll ever meet. They despair of life itself after a life of mocking it. Chris Farley was an iconic comedian through most of the 90s who all of his friends said was a loving and compassionate, fun guy to be with, but who struggled with depression and substance abuse until his overdose in 1997. It's interesting, in a later interview, Chris Rock, a fellow comedian, said that he saw the toll of cynicism of his comedy that, took, that it took on Farley. Chris Rock mentions one specific Saturday Night Live skit. He says, there was no comic twist to it, it was just mean. As many accolades as Farley got for that sketch, it's one of the things that killed him. It really is. Chris Rock could see it. He he could see that all the laughter was just cynicism, that it was destroying Chris Farley. And I think most of us remember the completely unexpected suicide of Robin Williams in 2014. Was there ever a happier, funnier fool than Robin Williams? And he hung himself. Is there an answer down the path of intellectualism? Is there an answer down the path of hedonism? Is there a path, an answer down the path of cynicism to life's questions? Well, what about the path of materialism? Verses 18 to 22, the preacher laments the uselessness of all the fruit of his labor. In that paragraph, roughly a dozen times in those four verses, the futility of labor is repeated over and over and over again. Solomon early on said that he had vineyards and houses and slaves and servants and ponds to irrigate his forests and flocks and herds and silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon had it all and did it all. 
In spite of all of his industry, in spite of all of his accumulation of material goods, he says there's no answer on that path. The interesting thing is our current generation, and, and we think of the generations before, and industry was so important, right? The building of North America and working hard and getting out of the war years and, and all the things that we did as a generation and multiple generations to build wealth and to care for ourselves and build up this nation. And millennials are waking up now in this generation to this fact. A January 4th, 2022 article on CNET which ironically bills itself as your guide to a better future. Okay, (laughs) we'll see. They have an article titled, Hustle Culture is Facing an Existential Crisis with Millennials. Millennials are wondering whether finding meaning in their job is a fruitless pursuit. It goes on to say, In Silicon Valley, where you can eat, socialize, and do laundry at the office, work can warm its way into the center of anyone's life. 73% of millennials report working more than 40 hours per week. Burnout occurs when all that devotion becomes untenable, but also when faith, what an interesting word, when faith in doing what you love as the path to fulfillment, financial and otherwise, begins to falter. Well, Solomon could have told you this if you had just read Ecclesiastes. Solomon was skeptical of hustle culture 3,000 years ago. The preacher's already aware that this is not the path to fulfillment. He had hustle. He had the fruits of hustle, and it didn't satisfy. There is no number in your bank account, no smartwatch or phone you can buy, no vacation or car, no promotion or accomplishment that will satisfy. And yet there's a dangerous and subtle form of hustle stoicism that's still being peddled online. And it's gaining momentum, especially among young Christians. This is not just, you know, workaholic atheists or agnostics. Christians are buying into the hustle mentality in terms of finding fulfillment and purpose. Just yesterday... I was reading an article that came out from the Gospel Coalition. I just realized I said yesterday when I wrote this. So four days ago, an article came out from the Gospel Coalition. I'm reading online on Facebook, and the Gospel Coalition puts out this article, and it's shining a light on this phenomenon of what they call hustle stoicism. There are podcasts and books and YouTube channels from people like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and David Goggins and Jocko Wilnick, and they're pushing this self-help philosophy of grinding yourself to the bone to achieve personal greatness. And all of these mega-influencers with well over 30 million followers and multiple best-selling books are appealing to the hearts, especially of young Christian men, because they say just enough about Christian values to make it seem like what they are teaching is biblical to some degree. But their message is all the same. Summed up as Joe Rogan says, you can choose to be the hero of your own movie right now. Write down your goals. Write down the things you want to improve. Write down the things you won't tolerate from yourself. Write down what you've done in the past and you never want to see yourself do again. And go forth from here as the hero of your own movie. The article goes on. Self-help influencers who offer a secularized vision that affirms many good and biblical truths but not one that's rooted in a biblical vision of the world, is a vision that resembles Christianity sufficiently to take hold of young believers' hearts and minds without them noticing it's actually a syncretistic distortion. That means it's merging things together. 
It shares some goals, some virtues, and some practices, but it differs in basic presuppositions. It is the hustle mindset wrapped up in the philosophical veil of ancient Stoicism. Here's a sampling of quotes from the thought leaders that I mentioned. You should be a monster, an absolute monster, and then you should learn how to control it. That's Jordan Peterson. An outlier will never allow someone to outwork them. If you are not the hardest working person you know, then you are not working hard enough. That's Haynes. It is possible to transcend anything that doesn't kill you, says Goggins. You you notice the words like faith and transcend and, you know, these types of things that are in there. And the writer concludes, this is the spirit of the new man. Achievement is the path to ascension. So we got to be careful because Solomon's already gone down this path of industry and hustle and accomplishment and accumulation and make yourself the best. And he found it empty. Millennials and Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever they are now, they're discovering the same thing, that this is empty. You can have all the toys, but it doesn't satisfy your life. Now, this is not an indictment against diligent work. Some of their habits are good that these people profess. Discipline is good. Patience is good. Tenacity is good. Sacrifice is good. But then so is humility and reverence and knowing one's limited place in God's creation. All of these guys need to read Ecclesiastes. Solomon worked harder, built more, had more, did more than these pretenders ever will. And he's seen the end of the hustle culture. And he's seen the destination of beast mode mentality. And it's utterly empty. It's chasing after wind. It's just chasing the wind harder. So in every examination of the spheres of life, the Bible never suggests that intellect or pleasure or laughter or industry are somehow inherently flawed. None of these things in our life are inherently bad. But that all of those things are robbed of ultimate meaning apart from God. Sin has cursed every sphere of our life to some degree, and on their own they cannot fulfill. It's not their purpose to fulfill. Apart from God, industry, pleasure, laughter, things, wealth are all empty. And this is exactly where Solomon leads us back into the light at the end of his examination, after making the darkness as dark as he might make it, saying it's all futility, it's all pointless, it's all chasing after the wind, I hate life because of these things, in all the futility of his seeking and striving, the preacher leads us back out of the darkness to where we can find true light and life under the sun. So how does he conclude? In the end of this chapter, he says, there's nothing better than for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. Thus, this too is vanity and striving after the wind." So after years of experiment and inquiry, Solomon has finally found something valuable in life. He gets to the end of this perhaps decades-long exploration of all of these valiant attempts to find meaning and purpose, and he's finally landed on a final conclusion. Eat and drink and confirm that you are doing good work. 
And notice now that Solomon says that the work itself is good. It's not the results of the work. It's not the accumulation of the fruit of the work that is good. He says, just eat and drink and know that you're doing good work. Because that is a gift of God. Those things come to us from our creator. The ability to enjoy eating. The ability to enjoy drinking. The ability to enjoy our labor is a gift from God. And we should not ask for more than that. After exploring these paths without a single mention of God, Solomon now realizes that every path is futile except for one path, the path that is including God on the journey. And so now he brings up God five times and points everything towards God. It is from him. It is for him. Remember the old Apostle Paul as he's writing to his young student Timothy. I think he borrows a little bit from Solomon here when he writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Doesn't that sound like Solomon? (laughs) Just eat, drink, and know that your labor is good. Everything is meaningless without God. But the interesting thing is that with God, all those things that were meaningless for Solomon suddenly take on meaning. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? In other words, whatever you're doing with him can be enjoyment. It can be satisfaction. Jesus says it this way, Therefore do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things. Those are the paths that they are chasing And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, Solomon is picked up on this from the wisdom of God that he has. That it's with God, as God is with me on these journeys, that all the enjoyment of these things will be added to me. I will be able to enjoy the eating and the drinking and the working if God is with me. Without God, everything under the sun is grievous and elusive, but with God, everything under the sun becomes a gift and a blessing. If we seek God first, if we put his kingdom first, the enjoyment of life will be added as a blessing and as a gift. So I have to ask, where are you trying to find meaning? What are you hanging your identity on? What influencers are you listening to? And thinking, yeah, that's the philosophy for me. That's, that's what I'm going to go after to shape my life. That's where I'm going to put my hope for satisfaction. I'm going, to put my, I'm going to find my purpose in my career, or I'm going to find it in wealth, or I'm going to find it in pleasure, or I'm going to find it in the accumulation of things. Or I'm just going to sneer at it all anyway and just become a cynic and not care about anything. That's the way to get through life. Well, apart from God, all human isms end in futility. All the philosophical paths of life lead to nowhere except one path. Without God, everything under the sun is grievous and elusive, but with God, everything under the sun becomes a gift and a blessing. It's kind of a funny scene in the Tom Cruise summer action movie, Night and Day. There's, there's a scene where this super agent played by Cruz is, is telling this hapless citizen that's been caught up in his adventure, Cameron Diaz. He, he tells her, he says, if she wants to stay alive, she has to stay with him. He says her chance of survival depends on it. And he says emphatically, this is your chance of survival with me. This is your chance without me. With me, without me. With me, without me. 
Solomon says, this is your chance of satisfaction in life. With God, without God. With God, without God. You have no hope. You have as much chance of surviving as Cameron Diaz against the hordes of enemy agents coming against her. <laughs> With God, without God, Solomon says. You have no chance without God. With God, everything under the sun becomes a gift and a blessing. Without God, everything under the sun is grievous and elusive. And I just want to conclude because I do have the time. The, the message, again, to bring it back, especially to those of you that are younger, especially to those that all say under 27, under 25, but maybe with, you know, stunted adolescent these days, maybe it's under 40, I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but definitely to those that are under 27, the, the way our society sets you up is to call you down these dead-end paths. It's important that you're educated, and you need to get educated, it's important you understand that education will not satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. It's important that you experience joy and laughter. It's equally important that you don't buy into the idea that you will find satisfaction in fun activities or fun communities of people. That when your friends cynically laugh at everything that is really meaningful, especially when they laugh at the things you find in this book, then it's important that you have a a robust knowledge and a faith to stand against that laughter. When you look at the people around you who have hustled and grinded to have wealth and prosperity beyond your imagination and that seems out of reach for you, like they have it all and you don't have it, it's important that you know that there's no ultimate satisfaction or meaning in all of their toys. That Work is a means to an end. Work and accumulation of wealth is not an end in itself. It's important that you remember these things that Solomon teaches. And you have to understand that at the, at the point where these roads diverge in your life, or at the beginning of any of these roads, and there's many other roads, you can meet Jesus before you go down that road. You can... Meet Jesus at any point along that road. But the sooner you meet Jesus, you will be saved from the heartache of emptiness and disillusionment and futility and the chasing after wind that these roads will leave you with. The sooner you meet Jesus before you go down these roads, the better. And you can hear that, and you can choose to resist the words of the Bible, you can choose to resist the words of your mom and dad. You can resist the instruction of the people who have only love and longing for you. That you would not suffer that futility. You can ignore them. And you can try these roads for yourself. And you may actually succeed under the sun in traversing those roads. You may get really smart. You may get really wealthy. You may have a lot of fun. But even if you succeed in these roads under the sun, as Solomon did, 
you will discover that they lead finally to the grave and then to the throne of God, as Solomon discovers. The outcome of the fool and the wise men are the same. They both die. And you will have to answer to God why you rejected all that he offered you every time he intersected your life on these roads and why the cross and Jesus you laughed off. So again, to those that are younger, make your parents' faith your own faith. Trust Jesus for yourself. Your parents will not be with you at the throne of God. You need to have your own savior. You need to have your own friend in Jesus. Because the futility of these paths do not get easier as you get older, they get harder. Life under the sun only gets hotter apart from the shade and the protection of Jesus. So I encourage you young people to take to heart when I say that this is a book for teenagers. This is a book for the young as well as the old. Read Ecclesiastes. Listen to your parents and to your spiritual aunts and uncles here at the church. Don't join the cynics as they laugh. Don't join the hustle culture that tries to work or party themselves to the grave with nothing but dust to show for their lives at the end. Meet Jesus before you get on these roads. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for Solomon. We thank you for loving parents and spiritual aunts and uncles who have nothing but love and longing that anybody that's trapped on these roads would meet Jesus there. And we know that you sent your son <laughs> to say the father knows you need all these things. And the father has, can make all of these things a blessing and a gift in your life. You can enjoy work and enjoy laughter and enjoy things you can enjoy all of this stuff. If you seek the kingdom of God first, they can become a blessing. Father, we thank you that we've put this, that you have put this emptiness in our heart. As we're going to talk about, I think it's maybe even next week, you have put eternity in the heart of men. You've put eternity in the heart of us so that we can sense what is missing. Father, we thank you for that. We pray again that we, like Solomon, would pursue to fill that emptiness and we would find where that emptiness is filled. In the love of God, in the sacrifice, and in the righteousness of your son Jesus Christ, and in the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we might come to know you and not despair, not end in futility, not chase after wind, but to have all good things that come from your hand, especially eternal life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.